It's Wednesday, May 31st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The deal with the debt ceiling deal is that it is going to pass, and thank goodness for that. But there is a faction of Republicans who are unhappy, quite unhappy with this predicament, and their qualm is one of basic math, or maybe physics. You can't keep piling on debt without eventually collapsing under it. Well, maybe you can for longer than we thought, and certainly this was no way to break us out of the nasty spending addiction. But these Republicans, among them Lauren Boebert, Ralph Norman, Byron Donalds, and Dan Bishop, always Dan Bishop. Now, Bishop, in a press conference the other day, was trying to get us, the little guy, to understand the big number that is a trillion dollars. I mean, that's what we're talking about here, a debt in the trillions, 31 trillion. So Representative Bishop consulted with Someone, who knows who, maybe one of the big tough guys who is crying in Trump anecdotes, maybe one of the people who is saying those people are out there. And this guy told Dan Bishop a fascinating fact about a trillion. Do you know what a trillion is? Do the American people even, are they capable of evaluating? You know what a trillion is? They, somebody told me, I think it's about right, is a trillion is $8,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. Huh? Only... It is not right. It is not about right. Even if you can't keep track of all those zeros, and there are 12 in a trillion, or maybe about 16, according to the Dan Bishop friend who has the wonky abacus, but even if you lose track of the zeros, shouldn't you know that there are about 330 million Americans and eight times 330? I mean, forget the zeros. It's not going to be one something. It'll be more like two something. Yeah. $8,000 for every man, woman, and child is $2.64 trillion. So Dan Bishop was off by more than a trillion, which just goes to show you how big a trillion is. You could be off by a trillion dollars, and Dan Bishop won't even buy a new calculator or get a new friend. On the show today, more Dan Bishop, or at least this Dan Bishop bit of disappointment over the fact that the debt ceiling deal didn't cut IRS funding enough. Dan Bishop said, quote, so there will be 85,260 more IRS agents rather than 87,000 to eat you alive. Big win. But first, yesterday I spoke with James Comey. I challenged him about some of his handling of the pieces of the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation, which was the investigation into the relationship between Russia and members of the Trump campaign. Today, I interview Michael Isakoff, who has been covering crossfire hurricane, the Russians, the Comey firing and the recently issued Durham report. Isakoff is the author of Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. He's also host of the Conspiracy Land podcast. Michael Isakoff up next. There might be, I mean, there definitely are people alive who know more about Russiagate slash Crossfire Hurricane, maybe Peter Strzok or James Comey or Vladimir Putin, for that matter. There's no one alive, perhaps, who's more fair about all the information that he has. Michael Isakoff is the chief investigative correspondent at Yahoo News. He's the co-author with David Korn of Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war in America and the election of Donald Trump. He used to host one of my favorite favorite podcast, Skullduggery, that no longer exists. So essentially, I am 
dragooning him into an episode of Skullduggery, if it did exist, to talk about the latest revelations and what we've learned about things like the Durham report and where we stand now just on the state of play with uh, Trump, Russia, our perception thereof. Michael Isakoff, welcome to The Gist. Hey, great to be with you. And um, yeah, especially since I was uh, censored when Skullduggery got shot down. It's great to be back in the podcast world. Was that is that fake news that you were censored? Uh, well, they shut the podcast down, yeah. so I but guess not, that but, is a form of censorship. I, yeah. I don't, I don't sense it was editorial censorship. So, have you read the Durham report? Um, I have. Or it's three hundred some odd pages. Yeah. And my question is, and so much depends on level setting and and your level of knowledge going in. You're a reader's level of knowledge, but if you were crafting the headline or takeaway. For a news source like CNN, so fair-minded viewers, but you want to communicate with them with where you perceive they are already, what would you tell them the most important thing or things about the Durham report? Well, um, you're not restricting me to the headline here. No, no. Okay, good. Um, Yeah, look, um, we are in a world where um, we have dueling narratives uh, about everything to do with Russia and Donald Trump and the 2016 election, right? Uh, And, um, you know, the standard narrative, which by and large I buy into and wrote a book about uh, with David Korn, uh, is, yeah, Russia interfered in our uh, election in 2016 in an unprecedented way. It hacked the emails of the DNC. It hacked the emails of uh, the Clinton campaign through John Podesta. It distributed those emails to WikiLeaks for the purpose of influencing our election. That was a real thing. Um, There were lots of reasons to be quite suspicious about not just uh, what the Russians were doing, but about um, potential uh, connections uh, between uh, people in the Kremlin and people uh, close to Donald Trump and indeed Donald Trump himself. He was trying to do business in Russia while he was running for president, something that was not disclosed to the public. He praised Vladimir Putin uh, in ways that were seen as over the top and um, uh, seemed to ignore many of the um, legitimate issues that uh, the West has with uh, Putin. Um, There were people in his campaign, in his orbit, Paul Manafort, Mike Flynn, who had had um, relations with various people in Russia. There was a lot of reason Mm -hmm. for the FBI to investigate uh, that matter. Um, Now, the other um narrative the dueling narrative uh on the on the right and in trump world is this was all a hoax um that um uh the fbi um was uh, inf- unduly influenced by the Clinton campaign itself through the dossier, uh, the Steele dossier, uh, and other contacts that Clinton people in Clinton world had with the FBI. Uh, and um, uh, John, that's what John Durham's report was about. 
Yep. And I thought John Durham raised some legitimate issues with how the FBI uh, went about things in um, the summer and fall of 2016. Uh, contrary to reports in the New York Times and otherwise, he did in, uh, uh, reveal new details that we didn't know about um, the FBI's various screw-ups. Um, the fact that the initial investigation was predicated on this information from an Australian diplomat, which we learned from the Durham report, people in the um, FBI thought was thin, um, mm -hmm. maybe didn't measure up to a justification for a full-scale field investigation. Um, there were people in British intelligence who dismissed it as uh, not being terribly significant. Um, and while the Steele dossier uh, didn't uh, it trigger the um, FBI investigation, um, it certainly influenced it. And, and more than that, it influenced the media, the culture. And, and I should add, and it took a while for this to finally penetrate the Steele dossier, um, we now know it was largely bullshit. There was yeah. almost nothing that was new that Christopher Steele brought to the table that has held up, that has ever checked out, contrary to what you may have heard on MSNBC or CNN or elsewhere in uh, the, um, uh, the among the people who track this. Um, uh, the, the Russia uh, intervention in our election was not a hoax. It was real. It should have been investigated. It was unprecedented. There were legitimate reasons. Uh, I and a lot of people were suspicious about various um, contacts that um, people in Trump world had with the Kremlin. All that was fair game, but the FBI made a lot of mistakes uh, in doing it uh, in, in, in the course of its investigation, uh, and uh, that deserved to be aired to the public. Right. The Russians interfered, but there has been some goalpost moving among yes. members of the media, among elected officials. And the goalpost used to be Russians interfered with the help and assistance or maybe even at the behest of Donald Trump and close members of the Trump coterie. Those goalposts have been moved to somewhere like Russia interfered. This is true. Fancy bear, cozy bear, the IRA, stealing, the, stealing Wikipedia. Trump knew about it and did nothing about it. But that that's where it moved to. But let us recall that for the length of the investigation and the Mueller report and even afterwards, the strong implication and assertion in many quarters was that Trump himself and those close to him were much more involved than I think we can say the facts bear out. Yeah, I, 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 that's absolutely the case. And, you know, it is, um, uh, you know, really remarkable to me the way uh, the coverage um, of this has skewed so that um, um, the FBI's screw-ups, the role of the Steele dossier, um, and the role of the media, and, you know, uh, the people on the right will include me in this. We can talk about that uh, as well on this podcast. But um, uh, we're all minimized if you read, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post coverage, as though it didn't matter, as though the Steele dossier wasn't a thing. 
that right. influenced um, the way people were thinking about this story. And no better example than go to the stories that Durham conclusively shows that the New York Times published on its front page that were just flat out wrong. You know, that the FBI, the government has, uh, has um, uh, inf- evidence of multiple con- uh, uh, contacts between uh, Trump campaign and the tr- Kremlin that were picked up on intercepts, right? Yep. Yep. That's what the New York Times told its readers. That was clearly influenced by the the narrative that was set forth in the Steele dossier of a well-developed conspiracy. And when asked under oath about that front page story, Comey had to be asked about it. Is any of that true? He did acknowledge, no, to my to my understanding, that's not true. Right. And internally, Durham uh, includes um, the, you know, internal emails and and, uh, uh, text messages from Peter Strzok, among others, who say, no, we don't have anything like this that um, The New York Times is reporting on. You know, curiously, The New York Times makes no mention of that in its uh, coverage of the Durham report. They just sort of skip over the fact that, yeah, we got some stuff wrong. John Durham has documented it. Now, John Durham has made his own (laughs) screw ups as well. And there was a lot of moving of the goalposts on that side as well, just as there was moving of the goalposts on the Mueller side. Indeed, there was. Because when the inspector general of the Justice Department, Michael Horowitz, came out with his report, which I don't think too many sides uh, disagree with. I think that that is one of the more widely praised documents in all of this. And at the time, Durham said, well, I don't know if uh, we agree with those conclusions. We might go further. So people were pretty, that people's hair was on fire. Well, Durham says he might go further. Durham has the power to bring charges. Let's see what the Durham report says. And then Durham did not match his bluster at the time of the Horowitz report being issued. Um, no, although he did justify his statement or, you know, tried to justify his statement in, in the report, which, you know, outlined why he felt a full field investigation by the FBI was not justified. Yeah, I want to uh, st- stop and clarify yeah. for my listeners, which is this, this was a major critique. There were a couple critiques in the Durham report. One was confirmation bias and one was not that a investi- an investigation shouldn't have started, but Durham was saying the full investigation, a robust investigation was never called for. And I want to know your understanding of intelligence and the kinds of investigations uh, they can do. How good a point is that? Or how much did Durham prove his I mean, point? It's, it's a point. Um, uh, you know, I think the critique on that is you can very easily go from a preliminary to a full field, but you have to sort of, yeah. you know, jump through certain Hoops and establish certain facts. And, you know, Durham is saying they didn't, the FBI didn't really have it when it jumped to the full field investigation. Um, uh, and, you know, it is worth remembering, you know, that which Durham ultimately brought cases on, I'm sorry, that Mueller ultimately brought cases on, were somewhat less than what people were looking for. Yes, there was like major uh, uh, charges successfully brought against Paul Manafort. Um, But, you know, they largely had to do with payments from, you know, the pro-Russian government in Ukraine and acting as a foreign agent for that. Um, Not so much with any direct dealings with um, people in the Kremlin. Now, one of the reasons I thought that the FBI 
had good reason to investigate Manafort um, uh, during this period is um, he was in hock to uh, Oleg Deripaska, you know, the the, the Putin-allied uh, oligarch, billionaire, aluminum king. Um, and um, uh, Deripaska was suing him uh, in the Cayman Islands. Um, I first reported on this in May of, of 2016. Um, and um, he was in hock to um, a leading guy <laughs> very close to Vladimir Putin. That's a potential compromise right there. And, you know, you go back to what people, um, uh, what the Senate Intelligence Committee um, concluded about Manafort's uh, uh, sharing of polling data with um, uh, Konstantin Kalimnik, um, a guy assessed to be uh, part of Russian intelligence. Um, and the most logical explanation for that was not that he was trying to help the uh, uh, internet research agency in its targeting of uh, social media ads, but he was trying to suck up to oligarchs in, the, uh, in Ukraine and possibly Deripaska himself by feeding them some stuff so he can get some business after he um, uh, left the um, the Trump campaign, which he did yeah. in August of that year when he was fired. So, I mean, it, this is a more complicated story than people want it to be um, uh, on, on both sides. Um, other than a bureaucratic critique about the full field investigation, what would be the worry or what was what would be the cost of a full field investigation versus something more preliminary? Because the full field investigation didn't prove anything. Is the case that just the very fact of the full field investigation influenced coverage, expectations? I, I think uh, all of the above. It's certainly now look, um, not much was known during the campaign about um the FBI's investigation. In fact, my story about the FBI or intelligence agencies investigating Carter Page's, um, the allegations relating to Carter Page, was the only story, well, until David Corden weighed in a little later, but no, it was the only story, certainly the first story, to report that U.S. intelligence agencies were even looking at anything to do with Trump and Russia. But it didn't get a whole ton of uh, attention at the time. Right. Um, the Clinton campaign did put out a press release about it, but it wasn't jumped on by um, uh, most of the media at the time. I don't think they were able to confirm it or uh, until uh, after the election when there's a ton of stories along these lines, including the fact Washington Post was the first to report that the FBI even got a FISA on Carter Page um, uh, as a sign of how seriously they were taking these matters. Yeah, and part um, of the reason they got a FISA on him was citing your story, which right, was... which was which, ridiculous. It was totally ridiculous. Well, it was also circular, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Ridiculous because it was so circular. Um, my story was reporting on what they were investigating. That was the basis for the story, that U.S. intelligence agencies were investigating allegations from a Western intelligence source that was, in fact, Christopher Steele. Um, I can say that today. Um, uh, 
but not that um, I could verify the basis of the allegations. I had no way to do that. Nobody was in it, and neither could the FBI at that point. They just thought, given the full context of everything that was out there, this was something worth investigating, and I thought that was something worth reporting. But beyond that, it's clear that um, the Steele dossier was a major factor in getting that FISA. Um, And, you know, the New York Times wants to say, well, it was only a small part of the FBI's uh, crossfire hurricane investigation. In fact, it was the only FISA they got. FISA is the most powerful tool the FBI has. Um, It's the only time they went to a court the FISA court, and said, we have probable cause to believe this guy is an agent of a foreign power. Carter Page was the only person in Trump world for whom they went to the court to do that, and it turned out to be a complete bust. Yeah, but besides besides a FISA warrant, how else was the Steele dossier important? Um, you told Jeff Gerth in a long piece, series of pieces, I guess, a four-part series in uh, the Columbia Journalism Review that the Steele dossier was third-hand stuff. In retrospect, it never should have been given the credence it was. Uh, factually, we know that. But what was the importance that it was given credence other than politically, uh, you know, in terms of partisanship and beating the Trump campaign about the head and neck with it? It was a big deal in the media world, in Congress, and in our culture. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in part because there were so many legitimate suspicions about Trump's connections with Russia, right? I mean, Christopher Steele didn't just like, you know, come up with this, you know, out of the blue. I mean, there was a a lot of predicates that made things look suspicious. This is often the case in our business where things look really suspicious. We think there's a big story. And then when we investigate, we find it's usually not what we went in thinking it was. It was. It's usually something else. Um, uh, in this case, um, let's start with the FBI. Um, James Comey and, uh, and Andrew McCabe wanted to include references to the Steele dossier in the intelligence assessment put out by the that 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 Obama ordered the intelligence community to put out they yeah. believed in it they believed there was something there so it influenced the FBI it influenced the thinking of the FBI on 7th floor headquarters and that's also clear from the Durham report the the degree to which Comey and McCabe were pushing Um, the crossfire hurricane investigation to be as aggressive as possible. Number one, Congress. I mean, my God, Adam Schiff was putting the Steele dossier in the congressional record. You go back to the first hearing that Congress has on this and he's, uh, Schiff is reading chapter and verse from the Steele dossier, asking questions about it. He bought into it. And as you know, I mentioned before the media, CNN, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, Nicole Wallace, they all did shows pumping up the Steele dossier, claiming 
falsely, wrongly, that it was being corroborated, that more and more information was coming out that corroborates the details in the Steele dossier, when in fact, nothing could have been further from the truth. We now know that from January 2017, like right off the bat, the FBI tracks down Danchenko and starts pressing him about the details. Danchenko was the source for Christopher Steele. Yeah, this is Igor Danchenko, the subsource, right? Yeah, the subsource, but actually the key source. I mean, mm-hmm. that's where most of it came from, from Danchenko to Steele. And Danchenko says, look, it was rumors. I exaggerated. I embellished. You know, he didn't have any direct uh, uh, information that confirms what's in the Steele dossier. So all of that is a thing. I'm sorry. I know that that's not what, you know, people who are believe, as I do, that the Russia thing is not a hoax and is real and that there was really legitimate things to investigate. That's not what they want to hear. But it happens to be, sadly, the complete truth. And I'm sorry, I have never heard of the uh, either the, the cable hosts or the commentators on cable who pushed this thing, you know, coming forward and admitting they were wrong and that they misled the viewers uh, who listened to all that stuff. And tomorrow, our conversation continues. We drill down on Comey's judgment calls, the sources of the Steele dossier, oh, and the very nature of truth. And now the spiel. In getting the debt ceiling deal done, Joe Biden and the Democrats acquiesced to some funding cuts. This was what the Republicans wanted, spending cuts, and they got some. Enough to say, let's not plunge our society into a cataclysm for which we'll get the blame and deserve it. Enough Republicans, including some really fiscally hawkish conservatives, are on board that it looks like the deal will pass. Some Republicans are exasperated by their fellows who are in the never-gonna-get-it caucus. This was Louisiana Representative Gavin Graves expressing his exasperation. Look, there was some trust that was lost. I'm not going to lie. There, there really was. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm really offended. And here's the tale behind the exhale. Where I think they made a tactical uh, uh, flaw or, or uh, a bad decision is that they stepped out before negotiations were complete. Go back and look at social media. Go look at what they said and what they did. There were a group of people who started saying things that were absolutely inaccurate about this deal, started bad-mouthing it and defining it before it was done. This is illustrative of the frustration because Graves is no squishy moderate, but he was the lead negotiator for Kevin McCarthy. His main sidekick was Patrick McHenry, who, in announcing the deal, dealt with one of the Republican spending demands that I find so curious. We also have uh, have a down payment in this package of a 1.3, I'm sorry, $1.4 billion rescission of the IRS. That takes away the full enforcement budget for this fiscal year. That's the down payment to say you can't hire any new IRS agents. Uh, We bank that and book it in this deal. 
What McHenry, Republican of Virginia, is talking about is that as part of the negotiation, a billion and a half, really $1.4 billion of IRS funding went away. That was the exact amount that would go toward hiring new agents. So this means the IRS won't hire new agents. Of course, it doesn't mean that. It means that they'll have to put off redoing the cafeteria while still hiring new agents. By the way, the IRS cafeteria is overrun with documents and part of the reason the IRS has a huge backlog. We know, right? We've all seen Jamie Lee Curtis and everything everywhere all at once. But according to Catherine Rampell's reporting in the Washington Post, quote, the agency's embarrassingly outdated paper-based system leaves stacks and stacks of returns cluttering shelves, hallways, and even the cafeteria. On the pipeline, that's this giant, massive paper dragon. Paper tax returns aren't scanned into computers. Instead, IRS employees manually keystroke the numbers from each document into the system, digit by digit. So the IRS could really have used the $87 billion it was budgeted for. The fact that $1.4 billion of those dollars serves as a haircut, however, is not dire. But to a certain kind of Republican, it was a horror, a travesty. According to Jason T. Smith, Republican of Missouri, a, I guess he's calling it a potential vulnerability? Our bill in this proposal eliminates that $1.4 billion for this year, um, which will only help safeguard working class families that they won't see in an increase of audits. Well, the working class families who actually pay their taxes won't suffer one bit. Wealthy tax cheats will be the one to suffer, though not unfairly. I find it, here's that word again, curious that the Republicans believe they have this huge political winner in starving the IRS of necessary funds, necessary to compel everyone to actually pay what's actually owed. I would think the average voter would want people to pay what they owe. This was all behind Chuck Todd's question a couple of weeks ago on Meet the Press. There's one more thing House Republicans are asking for, which is they want fewer IRS agents. They want fewer attempts to try to properly uh, get tax receipts into the federal government's coffers. I have never understood the resistance of extra IRS agents uh, unless you knowingly cheat on your taxes. Now, if I wanted to be perfectly consistent, I would point out that there is no other form of law enforcement where Chuck Todd would so plainly endorse full funding to apprehend lawbreakers. He would never say to a member of the squad, but why would you want to lower the police department funding? Aren't the only people who have to fear the police department, those who are breaking the law? So Republicans back the blue, except for in this one case, and progressives wouldn't mind defunding the police, except for these police, defund police. Get it? They're the police who are in charge of defunds. <laughs> I, could have, I could have taken that pun out, but then I would have defund my spiel. You know, one last point here, and it's this. Of all the spending that you could scrap, of all the things that you could defund in the name of lowering the debt, why would you want to defund the ability to collect taxes, which is the only way of paying down the debt, right? Taxes in, spending out, both parts of the lever. That's really all you have. (laughs) 
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the goddess of wisdom for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.